0: Nixon and governors meet? Southern Vietnamese reach the Cambodian capital. That was the headline of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, the last time the St. Louis Blues made the Stanley Cup final back in 1970. I don't know what the headline was down there today, but it's got to be something with the tune of Gloria behind it. It is a sports pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you Wednesday afternoon. Glad to have you with us. We've got hockey to break down. We've got baseball. We've got basketball. We've even got indie car racing. A couple of guests join me on the show later on, including one very familiar to this area. But we start with the NHL. The Boston Bruins will take on the St. Louis Blues. A Stanley Cup on the line. One of those two teams four wins away from it. And I tell you what, we could jump into stat of the day here in the first couple of minutes of the show, but I want to give you this one. I don't know if this is stat of the day, but it's a pretty good one. Boston and St. Louis, and by the way, what happened last night, setting up this matchup doesn't make this stat. It already had been made. Boston and St. Louis are the only two cities to meet in the championship round of all four major pro sports in America, NHL, NBA, NFL, and MLB. The Bruins and Blues, of course, did so 49 years ago in 1970. They will do so again here in a couple of days. The Cardinals and the Red Sox have met before. The St. Louis Rams and the New England Patriots have met before. And the Boston Celtics met the now defunct St. Louis Hawks for the NBA championship. No other two cities matched up in all four major sports championships. Here's another good one. The Blues are not only looking for their first-ever Stanley Cup, they're looking for their first-ever Stanley Cup final win. They have been there three times. They've been swept all three times. Weirdly enough, it came when they were a fairly new team. They were part of the 1967 expansion. They made the Cup final in 68, 69, and 70. They were swept in all three of those series. They are 0-12 all-time at this stage. But I tell you what, the Blues have suddenly become the darling of the sports landscape. Because who would've thought the Blues would've been here? January 2nd, they had the worst record in all of hockey. 31st out of 31 teams. They were at 300 to one odds to win the cup. And yet here they are. They upgrade a net, they get a new coach, and now they're four wins away from a championship. No team has ever gone from worst to first in the same NHL season. I tell you what, to give you some perspective on the Blues and what they've done, how they've managed to get back into the title race, This is what it would look like if you tried to make that same sort of comeback in other sports. Where the Blues were in the standings one day after New Year's is equivalent to an NFL team starting the year 0-4 and then making the Super Bowl. It is equivalent to a Major League Baseball team sitting in last place through 40 games coming back to make the World Series. That would be like the Miami Marlins on pace to win fewer than 40 games this year making the World Series. It would be like an NBA team who was ranked last after 20 games. It'd be like the New York Knicks getting on a run in November and suddenly making it to the NBA Finals. That's how historic this run has been for the St. Louis Blues. Last night, they were at home, where Oddly enough, they've struggled more than they have on the road in these playoffs, and they set the tone early. They beat the Sharks 5-1. to They scored a minute 32 into that game. David Perron, I've always liked him. Even when he was a Penguin, he was stagnant as a Penguin. You know, I'm a Penguins fan, so I knew Perron, and he just wasn't performing, needed to change of scenery. He's been with the Blues a couple of times now, went out to Anaheim for a while, and it's good to see him start to add a little element to his game and start to find some success. Perron, a minute... minute... Minute 32 into the game, his sixth goal of the playoffs, assisted by Blaze and O'Reilly. Then with under four to play in the period, Vladimir Tarasenko with his eighth of the playoffs on the power play. O'Reilly got his second assist. Perrieko got a helper as well. The Sharks cut the lead in half, 640 into the second period. Dylan Gambrell got his first playoff goal, assisted by Jonas Donskoy and Martin Jones. How about the netminder with an assist? St. Louis would regain a two-goal lead about six minutes later. Braden Shen with his second. That came on the power play, assisted by Thomas and Petrangelo. St. Louis added two more goals in the third, both with under seven minutes to play. Tyler Bozak, in essence, finished it off with his fifth goal. Of the playoffs, Perron and O'Reilly with the assist. How about three assists on the night for O'Reilly? And then Ivan Barbashev with under three to play, scored in an empty net goal. Oscar Sunquist had the assist. St. Louis was held to just 19 shots. They did not have double-digit shots in any period, yet they scored five goals. So while you don't really like that low shot total, only 19, albeit against a pretty good Sharks defense, but then again, they were pretty banged up last night. Five of your shots found the back of the net. Five of your 19. You want to go a little deeper with it, St. Louis had three shots in the third period. Two goals. Two of their three shots in the third period found the back of the net. So again, not a lot of shots, not a lot of pucks pepper in the net, but efficient ones, albeit. You know what else was efficient last night? The power play. The Blues had the extra attacker twice, They went two for two in those situations. Jordan Bennington was named the game's top star, and he's been one of their top stars all season long. A big reason why St. Louis was able to turn it around. 25 saves, a save percentage of 962. He gets his 12th win of the playoffs. So maybe a little banged up Sharks team, but I tell you what, this is a Blues team that's easy to like. They're easy to fall in love with, not just because of who's waiting for them on the other side. Who wants to see another Boston team win a championship? It's been about 108 days since their last title. But check on those people. Make sure your Boston friends are okay. It's not just you don't want to see Boston win another title. But you saw Columbus with the Cinderella story for a while. The Carolina Hurricanes, the bunch of jerks mantra. You wanted to root for guys like that. You want to root for the underdog. How much more of an underdog can you get than the St. Louis Blues? Haven't been here in 49 years. Haven't ever won a game at this stage. A team that was dead last just after New Year's. And now look where they are. Four wins away from hoisting the cup for the first time ever. This is the Blues team that should have become the darling of the NHL world a long time ago. Tell you what, I'm fully on the Blues bandwagon for this When I'm fully on Jaden Schwartz's bandwagon. If the Blues win the cup, he deserves a Smythe. He does. Tarasenko starting to heat up offensively. But the way Jaden Schwartz has got this team through the postseason, a couple of hat tricks in the same postseason, to me, unless he has an absolute collapse in the finals, he is the conspite winner this year. So we have the matchup set. Game one is going to drop the puck on Monday night, Memorial Day hockey between the Blues and the Bruins. Who do you think is going to win? Vote on Twitter. Vote in our fan poll. You only got a few minutes left to get your vote in. You can do it on the ESPN UP Twitter page, at ESPN UP. Vote for one of the four options, Bruins in four or five, Blues in four or five, Bruins in six or seven, Blues in six or seven. Well, I tell you what, before we go to break and we get one of our first guests on Headset with us, let's go over to the NBA, where the Toronto Raptors have evened up their best of seven series with Milwaukee at two games apiece. Toronto won in the home court last night, 120 to 102. I've got a few thoughts on this. I'm ready to eat my crow. I've got a big bucket of crow in front of me here in the studio. I thought we would see something similar to game two. I thought Milwaukee would blow Toronto out of the water last night. They would be up 3-1. I'd be sitting here already talking to you about a bucks Warriors final. I still think that's what's going to happen. I still do. But Toronto's a good team, and they played well at home. Although the biggest thing for them is somebody not named Kawhi Leonard stepped up and took charge of that team. His name was Kyle Lowry last night. 25 points for Lowry, that led six Raptors in double figures. Leonard had 19, Norman Powell, 18, 17 for Marcus All and Serge Ibaka, then 13 for Fred Van Vliet. If you would have told me yesterday afternoon, we wind the clock back about 24 hours from now, and you told me that there were going to be six Raptors scoring in double figures and one of them wasn't going to be Pascal Siakam, I wouldn't have believed you. I wouldn't have even believed you told me it would have been Danny Green. Siakam had seven, Green had four last night. Here's the short version from me. If you're a Bucs fan, should you be worried about getting past the Raptors? No. You're still going to get by the Raptors. They're a good team. They're good on their home floor. They had a good game last night where everybody stepped up and was contributing. They played to their full potential. I thought game three was their best punch. Game four appears to have been their best punch. So should you be worried about the Raptors if you're a Bucs fan? No. You're still going to get by them. You're still going to win the East. Should you be worried about the Warriors? Oh, yeah. The Bucks are not looking like a team that's going to go into someone else's house and steal a championship from them, especially a team that is as good as the Warriors on their home floor. A team with title experience. They are a legit dynasty. Chris Middleton had 30 to lead Milwaukee. Giannis had 25 and 10. What has Toronto done to bottle up Giannis? And again, he's got two double-doubles in the last two games. We still say he's being bottled up, but that's because he set the bar so high for himself. Well, Kawhi Leonard's been a big reason why. Matchup-wise, you look at Kawhi Leonard, you don't think this is the guy that's going to guard Giannis Antetokounmpo. But he's done a marvelous job against him. Giannis had 10 points on the drive in the first quarter alone. The rest of the way, largely after Kawhi switched on him, he had just six points driving to the basket. What's more, Leonard defended Giannis for 76 possessions in games three and four combined, compared to 19 between games one and two. Leonard defensively has been excellent on Giannis. Will that carry over to Milwaukee? I don't think it will, especially coming off a loss. Last night was just the second time this year, regular season and playoffs included, that Milwaukee has suffered back-to-back losses. Following a loss this season, the Bucks are 22-2, and a 9-17 winning percentage. It's very rare that the Bucks lose two in a row, let alone three, especially on their home floor, especially in a game like this. It's not going to happen. Do the Bucs look like a team that could beat the Warriors right now and win a title? No, they just don't. They're going to have to prove to me again that they're capable of doing so here in the next three games, if it comes to that. Will they beat Toronto? Yes. They'll be fine. They'll figure things out against Toronto, because at the end of the day, the upside that the Bucks bring to the table with their depth is just flat out better than Toronto's. It wasn't last night. That's not going to carry over for the entire series. The Bucks will get by Toronto. May not be pretty. But I wouldn't carry the same confidence into the NBA Finals against Golden State. I need to see a little more out of this Bucks team. With that, we owe you our first time out. When we come back, a familiar voice rejoins the ESPN-UP airwaves. Ryan Marine is here to break down this weekend's Indy 500. That's next in the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP and the ESPN-UP app.
1: Check out the UP's live and local sports talk
0: show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to the Sports Pan on ESPN-UP. The ESPN-UP app, Tanner Hoops, with you. Familiar voice to the ESPN-UP airwaves joins us. Ryan Marine, former sports director here, current Indy racing analyst. Kind enough to join us on Headset. Give us a few minutes to preview the Indy 500. One of the favorite weekends of the year for anybody who's part of racing, what have you. Ryan, how's it going?
1: Man, it's going great, And, and you said it. It is Memorial Day weekend. It is the weekend if you're a motorsports fan the Indy 500, I think, uh, takes pride of place, but uh, if you're a former The One fan, you had the most prestigious race of the weekend at the morning, the Bonaco Grand Prix Indy right in the middle of the longest NASCAR race of the year, the Coke 600 in the evening. So this was always a weekend I look forward to as a fan, and even more so now that I get to cover my favorite sport professionally. So really looking forward to the weekend.
0: Well, first and foremost, Ryan, for those of us who've never attended the event, tell me about the atmosphere, the crowd, how the people of Indianapolis embrace the event.
1: Well, this is the event that put the city of Indianapolis on the map. It's been going more or less nonstop since 1911 they missed a handful of years for world war one and a couple of years for world war two but since 1946 it's been taking place uh, on or around memorial day weekend uh, uninterrupted and it's it's the, the one event that i think internationally the city has been known for for over a hundred years at this point which is saying something and it's the single it's the, the largest single day sporting event in the world they'll have three hundred thousand people in one place at one time for the race, which is always spectacular. The pageantry of it is remarkable, too, with it falling on the Memorial Day weekend. There's a lot of traditions honoring the military past and present that that happen every year that make it uh, That's really a part of the fabric of the event. And it's one of those things I always say, you don't have to be a motorsports fan to appreciate it. This is one of those events that if you appreciate competition, you appreciate history, it's one that's worth experiencing in person if for no other reason than the people watching. You will never have more fun at a sporting event just watching the people stumbling around, as as you will at the Indy 500. And uh, the last 10 years or so, the racing's been very good as well. So a lot of reasons to be excited.
0: Ryan, tell me about the field this year. What are we watching for? What are some storylines?
1: Well, there's plenty of them, and it it all got started last weekend with qualifications when one of the, the favorites, I suppose you could say, Fernando Alonso, the two-time Formula One world champion, failed to qualify for the race, got bumped out of the field in dramatic fashion by a youngster that a lot of people don't know much about in Kyle Kaiser for an underfunded team that had no sponsors on the car, just a plain white car when he started the week, and I think uh, earned himself a lot of respect, as did the little Junkos Racing team that put him in the field in the 33rd and final spot. Uh, so that's definitely the, the dominant storyline coming into the race, but I think also you have to look at whether or not Will Power can repeat as winner. It's been since 2001, 2002 since we've had a repeat winner. It doesn't happen very often. You've got Elio Castroneves back in the field. He's seeking his fourth Indy 500 win. If he were to do that, he would join A.J. Foyt, Rick Mears, and Unser Sr. as the only drivers in the history of the event to win four and the first foreign-born driver to win four should he get it done. And then you've got the precocious rookie, um, uh, Colton Herta has been remarkable. Just 19 years old. He became the youngest ever IndyCar race winner a few months back at Circuit of the Americas in the second race of the season. He's the fastest qualifying Honda in the field. He'll start in the middle of the second row in the fifth position. Uh, I think he's going to be one to watch on race day, two. So uh, the field is full of great stories, compelling stories, and, and you know the ones that I'm highlighting here by the time we get – to lap 200, they might not even be the ones we're talking about anymore. You never know with with an event like this one.
0: Ryan, how about a guy like Ed Carpenter, a local guy? He's a fan favorite. What kind of odds does he have entering this weekend?
1: Great odds. He was runner-up last year, led the most laps in the race. I think you have to look at him if you're looking beyond the traditional power teams, uh, Team Penske and Chip Ganassi Racing. And his Ed Carpenter Racing team, he is the only owner-driver in the field He's got to be the favorite from outside of that bunch. Uh, He's a three-time pole sitter. Like I said, he finished second last year in the best run that he's ever had, always fast around the speedway for whatever reason. And you mentioned the local connection. He is a fan favorite because he is a Hoosier. He's from Indianapolis. He graduated from Butler University in Indianapolis. And his family actually owns the track as well. So how about that for home field advantage?
0: Well, I tell you what, Team Penske is boasting a 35-year-old Frenchman that struggled toward the back end. Tell me about him and what he's looking at in this race.
1: Yeah, Simon Pagino, you hit the nail on the head. He got off to a really slow start, and actually he had gone over a year since his previous win. It went back to the season finale in 2017 since he was victorious, but he snapped that a couple of weeks ago. The month of May in Indy for the last uh, five years, six years now, has started on the road course at IMS. And Simon won for the third time in his history at that event. Uh, Really a breakthrough win and one that he needed. And then he followed it up with a tremendous performance in the pole shootout last weekend, quieting some critics. I think there were plenty of folks speculating that maybe his future with the powerhouse team Penske team would be in jeopardy. Because it had been a while since he had won, he had not adapted well to this new Arrow kit that debuted last year. And Team Penske doesn't sit around and wait for drivers to figure it out often, especially with some big team free agents coming in this upcoming silly season. Guys like Alexander Rossi, the 2016 Indy 500 winner, who runs for Penske in sports car racing. So, um, you know, there was there's a couple of, uh, of rumors that were floating around that maybe Simon's time with the team was limited, but. A win at IMS on the road course helps. Winning pole certainly helps. The way that uh, the racing with this new aero kit was last year, track position is going to be key. Starting up front is critical. And while I wouldn't put Simon in as a favorite, he's been sneaky good at the Indy 500 in his career at the track. And it would not be a total surprise if he were to win. I, I wouldn't put him, again, quite in the favorite role, but he's right there, uh, right on the verge.
0: Ryan, let's talk about Scott Dixon, 2008 champion here. He's done very well on this course, but Sunday will be the worst starting position of his career. What went into that? That's a good question,
1: and I think if you asked Scott the same question, he wouldn't have an answer either because uh, the, the Chip Ganassi Racing Team, I mentioned them earlier, is one of the powerhouse teams of the sport. They expect more. Part of the problem probably is the fact that he has a rookie teammate who. Uh, He's brand new to oval racing, having done done very little of it in his junior racing career before getting to IndyCar this year. That's Felix Rosenquist, who I rate very highly, but it's going to take a bit of time, and he had a big crash early in the month in in practice, which set them back in a big way. That, and I think, too, Chevrolet seemed to have the edge over the Hondas in terms of qualifying pace. And uh, whether or not that plays out in the race, I'm somewhat less certain. I think... It's going to be a bit closer because the boost levels for the turbochargers come down for race conditions relative to qualifying, and I think that will see the playing field evened a little bit. But you mentioned it. He's a 2008 winner of the race. He's a five-time series champion. He's third on the all-time IndyCar wins list. He, he really just needs one more Indy 500 to cement his legacy as one of the greatest in the history of the sport, and wow starting as far back as he is, yes, it's going to be a challenge, but you can't discount him. He and, the, and his team are, are excellent and one to keep an eye on. If you're looking for someone to charge their way through the field, uh, he, he's one of the favorites in that role.
0: Well, you can throw Ryan hunter Ray into that category if you wanted to. Yes. A 2014 champ, he's finished top five twice in his 11 races at Indy. What kind of odds does he have for this race?
1: Yeah, in that 2011 race, he actually failed to qualify. They had to buy a car that had qualified to stick him in the show. That was uh, maybe the low point of his Indy 500 career, but he followed that up with the 2014 Indy 500 win. He was the 2012 series champion. I- I'm stunned he didn't qualify better. Andretti Autosport has been one of the best teams in the last half decade or so at the speedway, especially in qualifying. But I think they're another one that you look at their engine affiliation, and the Honda simply wasn't performing on the same level as the Chevrolet in qualifying. Uh, Only one Andretti car made it into the Fast 9. That was Alexander Rossi, the 2016 winner. Colton Herta, who I mentioned earlier, that team, Harding Steinbrenner Racing, and if the Steinbrenner name sounds familiar, yes, it is. The same Steinbrenner as the New York Yankees. But uh, they have a a technical alliance with Andretti Autosport, and they've been leading the way, not just at Indy, but a lot of the season. The rookie, Colton Herta has been really good As for Hunter Ray, again, I would put him in the same category as Scott Dixon. He's always fast at IMS. He certainly knows what he needs from a race car to be fast, and he's got a good team behind him. So I would expect him to be a hard charger as well.
0: Talk with Ryan Marine, Indy 500 Racing Analyst, former sports director at ESPN-UP. Ryan, tell me about the drivers. What goes into this week as they prepare for the race? It's
1: wild. Uh, the, the schedule in the month of May is as intense as, as it gets. It's not like the old days. Um, for the old-timers who followed the sport, it used to truly be a month of May. And May 1st, the track would open for practice. They had two weekends of qualifying leading up to the race. That's all been condensed to some degree, but they spent all of last week running on the track, been qualifying over the weekend over two days. Another practice day on Monday. Tuesday saw the drivers... Sent out on a media tour that sent them to a bunch of different cities around the country doing media hits to raise awareness about the race. Uh, they'll be back um, uh, here today and then uh, back again on Thursday for a media day in Indianapolis before Carveration Day or Carb Day, as it's known, which will host the vital practice of the uh, of the build up to the 500, at an hour and a half session on uh, Friday morning, and it's a day off Saturday. And then it all gets down to business on Sunday. So, this, they're running ragged at this point. They, they've been sent out to do a lot of media. They've been on track a bunch. And all of this, of course, with the, the specter of the biggest and maybe most dangerous race on the calendar hanging over them. A, a race that a win would be life changing for, for these drivers. It's it, it has that kind of allure for uh, the world of motorsports. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a busy time, no doubt about it. I think they're all just anxious to be strapped into their cars come oh about 1140 on Sunday morning, and it turned loose about 20 minutes later for 500 grueling miles on the brickyard.
0: Ryan, tell me about the hours leading up to the race. Baseball players are known for being superstitious. Do you see a lot of that with racers as well?
1: You do. It varies. Some drivers say no, no superstitions. Others do things like the left shoe has to go on first, the left glove. You have to climb in from the right side of the car, not the left. Um, There, There's rituals, there's talismans, there's anything you could imagine. And there's actually a long history of it in racing and in IndyCar racing in particular. For a long time, you never saw green cars. Um, I think... There was like an 80-something-year stretch where you had no car with the number 13 entered. That was only broken, I think, in 2004, if memory serves. So there's all kinds of weird rituals and traditions. There was even one for a while where you couldn't have peanuts around a race car because of a notoriously bad crash that, according to legend, um, (laughs) they found some peanut shells around the car, and that spooked some people. And for a long time, there was a, a thing about peanuts, believe it or not. So, yes. To to say, to put it mildly, there are superstitions, there are traditions, and for Indianapolis, uh, certainly even more so, given the high speeds, the sustained high speeds that you have going for uh, the the two-and-a-half-mile lap around the track.
0: Ryan, how about for you, from a media perspective, what does Sunday look like? I know it's got to be one of the busiest days of the year for you, but also one of your favorites.
1: It is, and just a little backstory on me, you know, growing up in Indianapolis, um, going to this race as a kid, getting into broadcasting. My only goal was to be on the radio broadcast for the Indianapolis 500, and last year I was able to do that for the first time. So it's always a special day. It's an emotional day. I'll have uh, 12 friends and family sitting up in the turns with radios on, listening to our radio broadcast throughout the afternoon. And uh, for me, it's just it's a day in which I try and, and revel in the amazing opportunity that, that I'm, that i'm getting for the second year this year it's something i don't take lightly we have the ears of the world on us if you want to put it that way um the ratings came in last year and the listenership is in the millions It's a worldwide radio network armed forces pick us up we have uh, online streaming now so literally any corner of the world if you have an internet connection you can listen to the broadcast and a lot of people do and a lot of people in the stands listen listening as well to give them some extra information as they Watch the race unfold from their seats, but yes, it is a it's a busy day, it's a stressful day. I mentioned 300,000 people in attendance on race day, so traffic getting in and get out can be a bit of a challenge. Which means an early morning getting to the track to make sure I get there on time. The the high pressure of the biggest event in, in racing um, to, to go into it, and and then the big relaxation afterwards when I finally get home and have a chance to maybe kick back and have a beer and, and watch the replay of the race that always airs on tape delay at in Indianapolis uh, the night of the race. So um, it's going to be exhausting, it's going to be thrilling, and I just can't wait. It's, it's what I look forward to. It's the single day I look forward to most every single year.
0: Ryan, right, I could pick your brain for hours asking you about how you prepare <laughs> for a race like this. It's got to be completely different as compared to a football or a basketball game, but is there anything that, you could give me, in a nutshell, some way that you prepare sure. for a race like this? Well, it helps
1: that this is not just a one-off. In the old days of the radio network, they did the 500, and that was it. But uh, we were fortunate to be in a position where we travel with the series. I'm at about two-thirds of the races every year, and I've been to every race so far this year. So that helps build up a little bit of knowledge. To your point, though, preparation is crucial. And it is different than a stick-and-ball sport like football or basketball, but on the other hand, a lot of the same methods still hold true. You're still trying to find those compelling storylines that you can weave into the narrative so that it's more than just what's happening on the track in front of you. Um, There are, thankfully, wonderful resources online full of lots of great information. The IndyCar Series PR staff is tremendous. They always put out a bunch of great information that's helpful as well. I mean, it's just a matter of synthesizing all of that into a PDF that I can load onto an iPad that I carry around with me for quick reference. So uh, just quickly, the way that this works, we've got, I think it's something like 10 to 12 different announcers that are involved in the broadcast. We have an anchor in the booth. We have an analyst, former driver, who will be joining him. We have a historian as well, who has a lot of different insights that he can provide Four announcers in each of the four turns, or one in each of the four turns, and the play-by-play of it, it's just passing the baton. The, The chief announcer passes it to turn one, who calls the action through his section, hands it off to turn two, who hands it off to turn three, and on it goes. And then I'm one of the four pit reporters on the broadcast, so I'm assigned a quarter of the cars in the field, and that's my section. So I'm following their stories when they come in for pit stops. I'm giving updates. I'm listening to driver team communication on the radio, passing those notes along over the course of the broadcast about how the cars are handling, what adjustments are going to be made at the pit stop, things like that. And uh, somehow it all comes together at the end of the day. It's quite a a team effort. It's a lot of fun. It does take a lot of preparation for sure. But when it all comes together, uh, it can be really captivating radio. I absolutely love the end result. Uh, Racing on the radio is kind of unlike anything else for all the reasons I just talked
0: about. Well, you talked about how it's really a worldwide event, IndyCar, not exclusive to one region. Are you seeing it continue to grow? And with that, I mean, you have to have some wonderful experiences traveling world-round.
1: Well, there is a trip to Canada right now. There, I mean, previously there have been events in Australia and Japan and Europe and Brazil. At the moment, there's none of those currently on the calendar, but that, that's looking to grow. But if you look at the grid, it's a really international group of drivers. You've got uh, French drivers, of course, American drivers. Uh, we've got a driver from the United Arab Emirates, a couple of Australians, some New Zealanders, some Swedes, a couple of Brits, a Spaniard uh, in the race this year, a Japanese driver, a couple Canadians. So it really is an international flair, and, and that's something I enjoy about it. A lot of different perspectives are represented, and um, it, it makes for a lot of fun.
0: Well, I tell you what, Ryan, if there's one guy who's uh, flying under the radar, we talked about some of the big names. Maybe we've already mentioned him. If there's one sleeper, one underdog to watch for on Sunday, who would that be? I like
1: uh, the flying analogy because I'm picking the driver sponsored by the U.S. Air Force, Connor (laughs) Daly, who is making a one-off start in the race here this year. He's not currently supposed to do any other races. This is the only one has a really great paint scheme on that car. It even has the shark teeth. If you think about a classic Warbird, a World War II fighter, where they painted those shark teeth on the front, his race car looks a lot like that. It's really, really cool. And this is his best opportunity. He's another Indianapolis native uh, who's a second-generation driver. His father raced in the race. He is now with his best opportunity in his young career. He's made five or six starts previously, really not had a great deal of success, but He's with Andretti Autosport this year. He'll start in the 11th position in the middle of the fourth row, and I think Connor Daly has a chance to have a life-altering day. If he can put together a really good run, maybe that prompts uh, the Air Force or some other sponsors to jump on board. Maybe he's in some more races down the road, and he's been really fast all month long, good equipment that he's in, and uh, he looked really, really strong running in traffic in practice um, uh, last week. So uh, we'll see what he can do. And uh, if you're looking for a dark horse, I think that's the
0: one. Ryan Marine, Indy 500 analyst. He will be on the radio broadcast Sunday. Ryan, always good talking to you, man. Have a great time out there. Looking forward to catching up with you again soon.
1: Hey, the pleasure is mine. Anytime you want to talk racing, you got my number.
0: We owe you a time out when we come back. Can you ever do something so right that you get punished for it? You do things the correct way, but people end up telling you not to. That's next in the Sports Pen on ESPN UP and the ESPN UP app.
1: Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen, weekday afternoons at four on ESPN UP and on the
0: ESPN UP app. Welcome back to the Sports Pen on ESPN UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Here is your Sports Center update. A proposal by the Kansas City Chiefs to change the rules of overtime so that each team is guaranteed a possession does not have the support necessary to move forward. The Portland Trailblazers have extended the contracts of head coach Terry Stotts and point guard Damian Lillard. And finally, over 10,000 people have signed a petition calling for Danny DeVito to play Wolverine in the upcoming Marvel Comics Wolverine reboot. That is your Sports Center update. Tanner Hoops with you, glad to have you along with us. Bill Saul, former Northern Michigan men's basketball head coach, will join me in a little less than 10 minutes. But first, some Michigan Wolverine men's basketball news. Some good, some bad. The bad, we'll start with that. Ignis Brozdakis will stay in the NBA draft. However, Jawan Howard has been tabbed as the new men's basketball coach at Michigan. Fab Five member spent the last seven years as an assistant with the Miami Heat. He replaces John Beeline. Can being too good be a bad thing? One Minnesota University found out the answer is yes. I have a guest who's going to join me in just a moment to talk about it. But first, the NBA All-Defensive teams were released a couple hours ago. First team, a couple of bucks: Giannis Antetokounmpo and Eric Bledsoe, Rudy Gobert, Marcus Smart, and Paul George on there as well. Second team, a couple of Warriors, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, Joel M.B. Drew Holiday, and Kawhi Leonard. So I'll leave it up to you. Who is the biggest all-defensive snub, Al Horford and the job he did on Giannis in the Boston series, or Miles Turner and his 2.7 blocks per game? I'll leave that one up to you. Is being too good a bad thing? Apparently the answer is yes. Just ask the University of St. Thomas in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Earlier today, rival school presidents voted to kick St. Thomas out of the Minnesota Intercollegiate Athletic Conference. One of the founding members of the MIAC is being removed against its will. Joining me to discuss the situation is V and covers the Tommies for Tommy Media. Solvi, really appreciate you taking the time. I know this isn't a new concept. I know it had been kicked around for a while, but the timing of this seems really sudden. Was this a surprise to you?
2: Um, it first kind of started in April of this year. We started hearing about um, the other Mike presidents wanting to remove St. Thomas. So it was kind of sudden just in the past couple of months, but um, it's kind of been drug out. Uh, in the past few weeks here. So it's not super, super sudden, but it is unexpected in this this year, I think.
0: Well, Sylvia, I know football and a couple of lopsided scores have been cited as a big reason why this move was made, but you look at the conference standings and St. Thomas was third this year.
2: Yeah, um, the big football score that's getting cited is a really lopsided one of like 97 to zero or something, but that was a few years ago. Um, yeah, there hasn't been... The same. Our football team has not been performing the same as it was um, a few years ago. So it's kind of, there are a lot of other sports um, that do well, but they're not getting nearly the same attention in this argument over the St. Thomas and the Mayak as football is. And I think that's just because it's such a high-profile sport. Um, definitely a lot of students are upset about it from what I've seen on my own social media and just talking to people um, because it does kind of, people feel like, well, we're getting kicked out because we're too good. What kind of an argument is that?
0: I know it's still early, but is there any potential destination St. Thomas maybe looking to land, maybe a new conference to call home?
2: Um, we haven't seen any sort of timetable, but President Sullivan sent out an email to the St. Thomas community saying that our athletics director, Phil Estin, will be in charge of trying to find a new conference for um, St. Thomas, um, and there hasn't been any concrete um, information about what that would be.
0: Is there any worry economically, financially, that St. Thomas might have to add or drop some varsity sports in order to find a new home?
2: I haven't heard about anything um, getting added or dropped, but I know there's been a lot of talk about, um, you know, it would take like 12 years or something if we were to go D2. um, Just a ton of money of redoing our facilities and um, travel is a big thing. If we're getting kicked out of the MIAC, you know, all these schools are right in the Twin Cities around us. So... Um, wherever we do end up going, that will be a big deal um, of just having to pay for all the travel, getting sports to different games.
0: Yeah, I've seen Division Two talked about. Is that something that could be a real possibility, or is that just speculation?
2: Not that I know of. Um, I think people like to talk about all the options. Um, I've seen there was a Duluth News Tribune article that talked about St. Thomas should just go D1, and I think that's a little ridiculous just from a logistics standpoint. Um, I can't speak for certain about what's realistic for St. Thomas, but I know that a lot of students are just kind of um, feel like leaving D3 would not really be an option.
0: Solveig, what about the annual football game with St. John's? Are there any plans right now to keep that in place?
2: Um, Not that I know of. Um, I know that it's been interesting watching the reaction from St. John's because obviously there's such a huge rivalry. Um, uh, Tommy Media reported uh, St. John's John's students started a – Petition to keep St. Thomas in the MIAC, Um, so everyone's been kind of shocked seeing the reaction that even the Johnnies want St. Thomas to stay, Um, and that got over a thousand signatures, but I I haven't heard anything or seen anything about if um, the rivalry can continue if we're not in the conference.
0: Solveig Rainin covers the Tommies for Tommy Media. As always, Solveig, really appreciate you taking the time. I hope they get everything figured out. All the best up there. Sure, thank you. So how about that, ladies and gentlemen? A school represents you well at the national stage. No major scandals, nothing like that. No disruptions, no unruly behavior. They bring home a national championship in men's basketball a couple of years ago. And what do you do? You kick them out. You say because of parity, you got to kick them out. You're punishing a team for succeeding, for excelling. Isn't that what we're here to accomplish? Isn't that what we're trying to build? Successful student-athletes? Here's a statement that the conference released earlier this afternoon. After extensive membership discussions, the University of St. Thomas will be involuntarily removed from membership of the Minnesota Intercollegiate Athletic Conference. The MIAC President's Council signs athletic competitive parity in the conference as a primary concern. St. Thomas will begin a multi-year transition immediately and meanwhile is eligible to compete as a full member of the MIAC through the end of spring 2021. St. Thomas is one of the seven founding members of the MIAC and will leave the conference in good standing with a long and appreciated history of academic and athletic success. We'll leave the conference in good standing. How about that? Ladies and gentlemen, this is embarrassing. A school does well, so you punish them by kicking them out. We are in the age where we're celebrating the watering down of our strength of schedule. The participation trophy era, some call it. You don't have to beat the man to be the man. You just got to kick him out. This is Kevin Durant, but worse. What happened here is that Act Commissioner Dan McCain was faced with an ultimatum. Other university presidents threatened to leave the conference unless St. Thomas was removed. It was an act of attrition. You kick out one, you save nine. It's a good deal. Except athletically. What are we teaching these kids when we say, you're being punished for succeeding? It's sending the wrong message. Other schools feel so entitled that they want to be competitive in the conference again that they kick out a team they can't beat. Go out there and earn it. Go out there and beat them yourself. Work as hard as they do. Recruit the athletes they do. Get the coaches they do. Don't expect life to hand wins to you. I need to take a break. When we come back, I'll have Bill Saul join me on headset. We'll talk about his new gig down in Grand Rapids. That's next in the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP and the espn app.
1: Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, the Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP
0: app. Welcome back to the Sports Pan on ESPN UP and the ESPN UP app, Tanner Hoops with you, joined by Bill Saul, former head men's basketball coach at Northern Michigan, now the head coach at Calvin College. Coach, really appreciate you taking the time. Congrats on your new job.
3: Well, Tanner, thanks. Uh, and it, it was certainly a super tough decision for me and the family. Uh, we just loved our time at Northern Michigan, uh, not only the Marquette community, which was just so awesome to be a part of, the, not only in the schools, but uh, just around town, um, just a friendly, friendly place. Um, and then Northern Michigan University, you know, when you when you go through the process of rebuilding, it's always tough. Um, but we just had such a special group of guys. And, uh, you know, it was super, super, super hard to say goodbye to that group. Uh, but in the same breath, and I always have told teams this all the way through, um, you know, family always comes first. And for us... Uh, not only uh, parents that, that, are, that are aging and haven't really been able to get up to the UP to see their grandkids there for the last couple of years, but also brothers and sisters that are all close by. Um, that certainly weighed heavily in our decision to go. And then um, the chance, uh, you know, to come back to the alma mater, uh, a place that's uh, very dear to my heart. Uh, when when the AD called, well, actually, I, uh, I played basketball with uh, here at Kelvin in the 90s, and the early 2000s, um, and when he gave the call, we just decided uh, after a lot of soul searching that this was, this was certainly the best
0: place for us. Coach, tell me about the legacy you're leaving behind in Northern. Some ways you've shaped the program and how you've seen it grow.
3: Well, I think, first off, um, I think what we have is just not only good basketball players, but just tremendous young men. Um, very proud of the fact that when I got here, you know, the GPA was was hovering below a 1.9, and we were able this year to get our cumulative up above a 3.0. And it just tells the, the character of the student-athletes that we brought in um, and, and really that they're committed not only to being really good basketball players, but also being guys that are committed to doing great jobs in the classroom. Um, and then along with that, uh, really the revitalization of, of Northern Michigan basketball, um, Again, this was a program that had been through, I don't know how many losing seasons in a row, but a lot of apathy towards the program. And it was just great to see the fans come back out and support us. And again, looking forward to seeing that continue.
0: Coach, as you get set to take over at your alma mater, what insight do you have now that maybe you didn't have when you took over the Northern job?
3: Well, patience uh, was probably the big thing. Um, You know, when I had been at the three previous stops, two as an assistant, and then the one as a head coach at Ferris before coming to Northern um, was able to turn it around quickly, uh, went from teams that were in the basement, um, and within two years were able to win championships. And, you know, this time uh, the process at at Northern has taken a little longer, and I think uh, as coaches you have a tendency to want everything done immediately, and I think that's the drive that that makes you successful. And it will be no different here at Calvinism. We get going here, and, and, again, you're going full throttle trying to get everything accomplished. Um, but understanding that that it is a step-by-step, and baby steps sometimes need to happen. And so I, I think that's a big thing for me this time through is, is really evaluating where we're at, where we need to go, but not going 100 miles an hour in every direction, really finding the right direction to go in.
0: Coach, tell me about transitioning from coaching at the D2 level to D3.
3: Well, there's certainly a difference there, and so you really are going to target a much bigger audience. Uh, You know, we generally would recruit, say, 30 guys uh, at a northern, and probably that list expands out to 110 to 120, Um, and you're really getting more of a selection of, uh, of players. I think the one thing that is so unique about uh, Calvin is that, uh, it's based through the Christian Reformed church. So there's a nationwide network of Christian schools that are affiliated with the, with Calvin college. And so you have really almost a minor league system that you can build yourself into. Um, and you know, basketball is still the same. I don't care if it's, uh, division three or division one or division two, you want guys that are committed to being, uh, great student athletes and, and have a love and passion for basketball. So that's certainly not going to change. Um, but in the same breath, there there is that whole allure of, of being able to play one level up. And, you know, now instead of at the Division Two level, you're trying to snag a couple of uh, D2 or D1 guys that, that uh, they missed on here. We're looking at the D2 guy that uh, everybody's missed on and, and, and finding them and evaluating to make sure he comes to Calvary.
0: Coach, one of the biggest differences between D2 and D3 is the lack of scholarship players. Is that something you've had to navigate or something you could see coming you've prepped for?
3: Well, I mean, it's, it's more being compared for. I mean, it, it, when you look at it, there's, there's a big difference, uh, you know, with, with guys in scenarios. And, again, what we're looking for right now is, you know, potentially a couple of transfers that, uh, you know, might have played Division One or two in this late process. Because, again, here, um, you know, you really have to target guys quite early um, and build the relationship way more. It's because, again, you're, you're also, also having to pay to go to school. Um, so, you know, that that's all part of the process, um, but, you know, I think in the same breath, you know, we want to try to find the same type of guys that we got at Northern that um, really were the well-rounded player um, that, that really understood not only how important basketball was, but how important it was to continue to be successful
0: in everything. Talk with Bill Saw, new head men's basketball coach at Calvin College, formerly at Northern Michigan. Coach, once you get down there to Calvin, what's going to be the first thing that you want to do? Establishing a culture, meeting some of the new players, what is it that you want to do right away? Well,
3: first off, I mean, you've you, you got to see what you have in the staff, and again, we have we have 16 guys returning, um, and they, that kind of tells you a little bit about Calvin. They actually have uh, seven guys committed for next year without even a coach, um, so it tells you a little bit of the lure of, of this place um you know so, the, so those are the first steps and then again trying to not only evaluate but then see if there are some needs of of uh, being able to find some potential players you know the big thing no matter what level you're at uh, you're only as good a coach as you are the players that you have and so uh you know we have to really be able to go out there and find those guys um and again that's really what june will be all about um is is evaluation of the program, evaluation of where we need to go and then be able to really focus in on maybe a couple potential 2019 guys still left and then obviously the 2020 class will be huge for us.
0: Are you putting together a staff? Do you have anybody in mind who might be joining you on the bench down there?
3: Uh, You know, we've we've got, uh, I've got a number of guys um, being from this area uh, would like to possibly bring in an alum. Um, So, you know, that that process uh, is just kind of starting out right now. Um, but I, you know, I, I think within the next probably two to three weeks, um, we'll be able to narrow that search down and, and again, find two guys and, and have a staff of three, including the, the head coach, uh, that will really help us.
0: Bill Saul, former men's basketball coach at Northern Michigan, current head coach at Calvin College. Coach, really happy for you and your new opportunity. We're going to miss you up here, but we're going to be watching closely. Thanks again for the time
3: hey Tanner thanks so much thanks for your support uh, you've been tremendous and uh, best wishes to uh, to Northern Michigan and Marquette uh, and uh, we will certainly continue to watch uh, Northern Michigan basketball and certainly the group of guys I will stay in touch with uh, you know we we have a relationship that will last a lifetime um, so looking forward to uh, seeing it go from there
0: that is it for us on the Sports Pan. As always, appreciate you tuning in. Hope you enjoyed the show as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Back tomorrow, same time and place, 4 Eastern, 3 Central. My name's Tanner Hoops. Thanks for listening to the SportsPen on ESPN-UP and the espn app.